This is a Hot Pie Original. I could take two routes, especially when I was told that second time that I wasn't going to be put in. I could make a big issue for the team, right? I could Mm -hmm. say, what are you guys talking about? And make a big mess. And we were in the Olympic Village and I could just start parading the process and the coaches and the selection committee and making a big stink. Or I could say, the team is what matters. Mm Mm-hmm. And even in an individual sport like gymnastics, the team is what takes precedent over anything. David Durante is a former world-class gymnast and is currently the co-founder of Power Monkey Fitness. In this episode, we discuss his journey as Olympic hopeful and how he used his personal disappointment to support the U.S. team to a bronze medal. He also talks about Power Monkey Fitness's obsession with technique and their one-of-a-kind adult fitness camps. Before we get started, please stop and take 20 seconds and follow us on whatever listening platform you're on. And please leave us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. This will dramatically improve our ability to reach more listeners as reviews and follows impact the algorithms which run these platforms. In the next two weeks, I'll do a 15-minute Zoom call with a randomly selected person left us a five-star rating and submitted a review. No purchase necessary. On this week's segment called the It's Freaking Awesome Story of the Week, brought to you by the Festive Kitchen, we're going to highlight a movement called Back to the Wild. The Back to the Wild program is moving a herd of elephants from the UK to Kenya. Elephants are famous for their migrations, long marches across savannas and deserts done entirely from memory. But for 13 captive elephants in Kent, UK, their journey will look quite a bit different. That's because their trip will be one way, by plane, and will be the first of its kind. A rewilding effort moving all 25 collective tons of pachyderm via airplane back to their ancestral home in Kenya on what they're calling a Dumbo Jet. The Aspinall Foundation in the UK decided on an unprecedented project in a real world first, it's the first time a breeding herd of elephants has ever been rewilded. The elephants will be met on the Kenyan side by the Sheldrick Wildlife Trust. This is incredible news because elephants don't do well in captivity, but now they'll be able to live in the wild and free as nature intended. Thanks to Back to the Wild program for doing a freaking awesome work. But before we get started with my interview with David, right now, I want to ask you something. Tell me if you know this story. You go out and spend hundreds of dollars on a fancy wearable device, hoping that it will help you achieve your wellness goals, and then it ends up in your sock drawer. Sound familiar? Or how about this? You follow those cookie-cutter, clickbait health recommendations like walking 10,000 steps a day, and all it gets you is anxious and demotivated when life gets in the way and you can't hit that magic number. It's time for an evolution of expectation and results. And that's where AIM-7 comes in. AIM-7 sets busy people free to live their values every day by building lifelong healthy habits. We use the health data from your Apple Watch to create small, scientific, personalized recommendations for whatever you want to do. Sleep better, increase your energy, reduce stress, or lose weight. If you're ready to finally unlock the power of your Apple Watch data, then go to www.aim7.com. That's AIM7.com to get early and free access to our exclusive program. AIM7 starts small and starts with you, your health data, your values to get to your thriving life. But now it's time to lean in and learn from the best. So, Dave, you were a high performance athlete. 
an excellent gymnast. You know, I think you said you grew up in New Jersey, correct? Yep, that's right. And you were headed down a track to be an Olympian and you go to Stanford and in your first training session, you blow out your knee. Like, how did that change your life? How did, how did you handle that? Uh, yeah, it was quite devastating actually, you know, so excited to go and compete for Stanford. Just, it was kind of a dream come true. You know, I was fortunate enough to, uh, get recruiting trips to some of the other top schools in the country. I went to Michigan, to Oklahoma, to Illinois, and these are all, you know, powerhouses in the men's gymnastics world. And Stanford was the only one that I applied to. I really wanted to go to Stanford. I had a trip there when I was 12 or 13 years old for a competition out in Northern California. And I fell in love with the school and the program. And the time that I went out there, they were unbelievable. They had a run of three out of four championships and they had mm. Olympians and national champions on the team. And, and I fell in love with the program and the school. And so it was the only school that I really wanted to go to. So when I found out I got in and had an opportunity to compete for a Cardinal, I was ecstatic. So I just wanted to go in and prove that I belong there and that I could carry on the tradition of the great gymnasts that came before me. And so when I got in there my first day, you know, with some nerves and meeting the team for the first time and meeting the coaches and I uh, wanted to kind of show that I belonged and uh, it didn't really start out the way that I anticipated. I jumped up on my first event and fell and I tore my ACL, MCL meniscus in that first, first day, first turn. And um, it kind of threw everything out the window in terms of how I envisioned that freshman year going. Uh, I had to have surgery right away. And the first year was just about coming to terms with one, a major injury that was going to be a part of my life moving forward. Uh, it wasn't something that ever kind of fully went away. I ended up having three blown out knees by the end of my career. Mm. Um, but what it did was it, it gave me the ability to kind of learn that first year. And I took it as an opportunity. And my, my coach actually helped quite a bit with that freshman year saying, okay, you're hurt. You're not going to be able to contribute a score, but we're going to get you better. And we need to fix a few things. And one thing was my handstand line. And if you know anything about gymnastics or if your listeners know anything about gymnastics, the handstand is kind of the baseline for any gymnastics movement. If your handstand is poor, your, gym, your gymnastics at a higher level is going to be poor. And I always looked at my handstand as being somewhat strong, but it wasn't quite at a level where I could rest in a handstand, where I could use it as a reset position. And so that was objective number one, get my handstand to a point where it could become a strength position. And so I spent a ton of time and actually my handstand became better than most. It became something that I could really rely on. And then secondarily was about getting strong. And my strength levels were, I'd say, fairly average for a gymnast by the time I got to Stanford. And I was still growing. I was tiny. I was about 100 pounds <laughs> wet when I got to Stanford. I was a tiny guy. And I kind of, I didn't, I wouldn't even call it a growth spurt. But, you know, I ended up growing probably five inches by the time I went through college. And oh, wow. And, you know, in college and also as a gymnast, that's, that's a, I ended up being 5'5". Five, five. The hobbit that I am today, I'm 5'5". <laughs> five, five, and that's where I ended <laughs> Um, but I did go through some growth and strength came along with that. And so I spent a ton of time on ring specific strength so that I could actually become not only a contributor on rings, but one of the top guys on rings. And by the end of my college career, by the end of my gymnastics career, I was one of the top three guys in the country on rings, top four guys in the country on rings. And so my strength levels in my handstand were objectives that I looked at as priorities, uh, that came along with the injury. Your injuries are going to happen. You have to look at them as opportunities to become better, to grow in other areas. 
And for me and my coach, those are the areas that I tackled. Wow. I mean, getting comfortable in an inverted position is, is, and resting in that type of position is just a weird mindset for me. I'm a bit bigger of a human being. I have about 215 pounds. And so like, we could get you there. We could get you there. Hey, I believe it. I listened to another podcast with you where you're talking about now, this is like uh, these handstand positions are part of like the CrossFit uh, competitions and you're kind of the guru on that. And uh, it's interesting that that ability and your expertise came out of a rough situation. I did not know that that's kind of this place you started attacking right off the gate. Yeah. I mean, every, even five-year-old kids are learning handstands. I'm teaching my three-year-old, four-year-old daughter handstands on a regular basis here at the house. Uh, but there's a big difference between being just proficient at handstands and mastering a handstand. Mm. And it's a completely different application, what you can do with it. Uh, funny enough, when, when I, I've gotten pretty good with my handstands over the years. In fact, my handstands are better now than they were when I was a gymnast because it's something that I can spend much more time on now. I don't have to diversify my training across six events and things like that. Uh, but I actually fell asleep in a handstand once. <laughs> kind of, kind of interesting. <laughs> that that sounds like I, like you didn't pass out. You literally fell asleep. Uh, yeah, I was coming. I was jet lagged. I was on a long flight, and I had just got off the plane. I went to the gym to work out a little bit, and. I, uh, I do like long handstands as part of my training. And I got up there and I, I dozed off for a couple of seconds and I caught myself and I was still in the handstand. I was like, that's the first time this ever happened. I actually fell asleep upside down. I like, All right. I finally reached the level where I'm, I'm comfortable on my hands, probably even more than I am on my feet. So what did you study at Stanford? Uh, human biology. So I was a human mm. biology major, a minor in psychology. Uh, my area of concentration was sports medicine. Uh, I specialize in kind of, um, uh, cultural and, uh, gender differences in sports medicine. That was kind of my, my AC at Stanford. Interesting. So you went on to, I mean, to start training to become an Olympian, um, after your time at Stanford, correct? Yeah, that's right. I actually graduated and then stuck around at Stanford for another couple of years to try to train for the 2004 Olympic games, which I just missed out on. And then I had a choice to make, do I want to take a path down the medical, uh, into the medical world, which was a possibility given my degree. And, uh, it wasn't something that I really saw myself doing for the rest of my life. And then potentially PT school, which was definitely an option that I looked into. Uh, but the route that I decided to take was to really make a run at another Olympic game. So I moved, to the Olympic training center in Colorado Springs after 2004 and, uh, lived there for four and a half years. I believe like when you were training for the Oh four games that you took an approach that wasn't really the best approach for your health. You shut yourself off from family and friends and you really isolated yourself. And a lot of people would be like, okay, he's a training Olympian. He's got to go into like, you know, grind mode all the time. And, but that really didn't work out. Can you want to talk about that? Yeah, sure. It's not something I really talk about that often, but the more that I, um, the further I get away from it and the more life experience I've had, the more I recognize how poor of an approach it really was. Um, after I graduated, you know, most of my close friends had also moved on at Stanford. I wasn't a student anymore. So I didn't really have those same, uh, connections to the guys that were on the team. I wasn't participating on the team. I was a volunteer assistant coach while I was training all day. So my lifestyle was quite different than the guys who were on the team or what my life was like uh, previously when I was a student. So I was living now off campus, which is kind of rare at Stanford. If you're a Stanford student, you basically live on campus all Mm -hmm. four years. I was living off campus uh, in an apartment complex, 
completely removed from the rest of the team. And I thought that I needed to do everything I possibly could. I had this mentality that I didn't want to leave anything to chance. And so everything was a distraction that wasn't gymnastics. Everything was a distraction. Family was a distraction. Friends were a distraction. Uh, human interaction was a distraction. And I would just shut myself off. I wouldn't talk to people in the gym. In fact, I, I went on a little reunion with some of my college teammates uh, last weekend and they brought it up to me. They're like, you remember that year that you didn't talk to any of us? Mm. I was like, Oh, you guys remember that too. (laughs) (laughs) You're like, I want to sweep that under the rug. Yeah. It was a very bizarre time. And I think it really negatively affected my training. Um, mentally, physically, Mm -hmm. I was pretty good at that point. Uh, in fact, my run up to the 04 Olympic games, uh, Olympic trials, I made it to the Olympic team camp. They did the Olympic uh, selection at the Olympic training center. I did great. I hit everything. I hit every routine at Olympic trials. I had probably the best run physically uh, I've had in, in my career. Uh, I just was young. I was just young. I hadn't had a lot of international experience. And the guys that ended up going to 04 were probably, if not the greatest team we've ever put out on the Florida Olympic Games, the second best, either the 84 team that won the gold or the 2014 that won the silver that could have won the gold. So it was a really stacked team that I was up against. But physically, I was I was there. Mentally, I was shot, shot. I, I was, I, I remember having a few just complete breakdowns in the gym, bawling my eyes out to my coach saying like, what am I doing? Like, how can this be healthy? How can this be okay? And him kind of recognizing it, but at the same time, he was head coach of the team and he had other obligations. And, you know, I was just one of the guys that he was trying to look after. And um, in hindsight, it was, even though I performed well, I, I would not do it the same way. And in fact, that was my goal was to, to look at the quad between 04 and 08 and to say, let's have a balanced approach to this one because relationships matter hmm. and things outside matter you need to have hobbies you need to have um so do you, were you, you suffering from to. mental health issues do you think a little bit like some at all like or was it just know. loneliness or and then that manifested itself in just a breakdown because you didn't have a social network that you were connected to that very well could have been it you know my my main connection my whole life has been my family i'm mm. i'm an italian kid who you know whose family is everything and they're all back in New Jersey and in Italy. And so being that far removed from that support system, I think it was a little bit hard for me to not have that to lean on to, you know, during those tough times. And, and I always looked at myself as someone that, you know, you're tough enough to be able to get through this on your own anyway, you know, like, mm. you know, prove to everyone that you can get through these tough times. Like you make the sacrifices. Even when I was a little kid, I was all about making sacrifices that other people weren't willing to make. And I think that was something I always leaned on. Did that like, come from your family or was that a way that you were raised? I don't, I don't know. My, my, my parents and my brother and sister have always been like extremely supportive. Everything I did, they were never like pushing me to do anything that I didn't already want to do. I had this, this mindset when I was a kid that I wanted to do something more than just be the average kid. And so I, I did things that were above and beyond because physically I wasn't super talented. I didn't, I wasn't growing up uh, being this kid that was looked at as like, Oh, this guy's going to be on track to be a national champion or an Olympian or anything like that. So I had to, I always had to work my butt off to be able to catch up to those guys that had that talent. So I would do things that were kind of out of the ordinary. I said, Oh, 
I need to sleep in the gym. That needs to be something I have to do to, to show that I want to do this. You know how many times I slept in the Stanford gym? Like, I, Isn't I know it that. interesting that like what you think is going to be the thing that's going to get you there is usually not it. Because oh, yeah. it's like you don't have, especially when you isolate yourself, you are cutting yourself off from feedback too. Absolutely. I, I recognize that now that I definitely did that. And, you know, there would be olive branches that would be sent out by friends and people mm. that, you know, I consider to be like brothers to me from the Stanford team and be like, Hey, do you want to go get a bite to eat? And you want to go hang out? You want to go to the movies? And be like, no, get away from me. Like it's a distraction, something that I can't handle right now. And it was just a complete wrong approach. And, you know, I, I tried to fix it come the next quad, mm -hmm. even though I had success as an athlete during those years, I am not happy with the person that I was. And it was something that, you know, looking back, even, even with those successes, I wish I would have done it differently. Mm. So you go on to train for the 08 Olympics and that went better, worse, the same? Ah, uh, different, different, uh, much different. I think you know, moving to the Olympic Training Center was a blessing and a curse for me. It was the type of training environment that I needed in terms of, well, I mean, living in Palo Alto is a cost of living that most people can't afford, let right. alone a struggling gymnast trying to afford now living off campus, not on scholarship and that kind of stuff. So cost of living was one of the reasons why I moved to the training center and to have everything available there, right? I slept 200 feet from the gym. I Did you sleep in those dorms right there? Oh yeah. Yeah. Oh, oh. <laughs> and, and I have to tell you, my, my room is the best room at the training center. Oh, I've slept it's there the multiple times. Room. Were you in the barracks? The barracks? Are yes. I was yeah, in the those, barracks. Th those are the old, old. You know, oh, rooms. okay. You don't sleep back there. The resident athletes live along the kind of the wings of the oh, main complex. Nice. And I have to say, I have, I had the best, best room in the training center. I lived on the top floor and I looked at it at Pike's peak oh. and I lived closest to the stairs. So I didn't have to walk down the hall every day. And I had one of the bigger rooms that was originally meant for four people. And just me and my roommate, uh, Yuki Tamita, another one of the gymnasts. So I, I loved my setup at the training center. It was, it was a great situation. I lived right next door to Sherry Von, Re uh, Von Reason, who if you don't know who she is, you guys definitely need to know who she is. She was the OTC mom, um, mm. the Olympic Training Center mom, who took care of all of the athletes there. She actually just recently retired a couple of years, uh, a couple of months ago. But I can guarantee that she saved a bunch of athletes from the same thing that I went through. She was a sounding board for us. She used to take us out all the time. She listened to all of our concerns, and you know, she was a blessing at the mm. training center and was one of the greatest things that the the OTC had available to us in terms of just a resource and an outlet. We're going to take a break for just a moment to talk about how you can get exclusive content designed for high performers just like you. If you're looking for information and resources to improve your health, well-being, and performance, then sign up for my free high-performance newsletter, Adaptation. Just go to www.ericquorum.com and sign up now. This newsletter is my effort to bring zero-cost, high-performance resources and tools to anyone with a desire to improve. 
We know that some of you have been trying to sign up for the newsletter and we just found out that there was a problem with our contact manager. The issue has been resolved and to show our appreciation for your patience, when you sign up, you'll get my ultimate sleep cheat sheet, which includes easy to implement strategies to get a good night's sleep every night. Now, back to the show. But my, my years at the training center were, were great in that sense to have cafeteria there, sports performance there, PTs and doctors there, everything you need to succeed. Uh, but I, again, felt a little isolated. I didn't know anybody there. And it took me a really long time to get used to training with the new coach. And after 04, being so close to making the 05, uh, the 04 team, going into 05, I was kind of looked at as the guy that was going to take over as being the top guy in the USA for the next quad. And I screwed up. I screwed up. I wasn't quite, um, I, I tried to overdo things. I tried to put n- too many new skills in my routines and tried to show that I was like at a level that wasn't necessary. And my coach, my new coach didn't really know me as an athlete yet. So he was letting me make some decisions on my own. And, um, I really think that I didn't win the national championship in 05 and 06 because it was a new environment for me. Um, I fell like seven times at national championships and, which is crazy in 05. And I still took third place. Like if I would have fallen six times, I would have won. And I mean, falling six or seven times the national championships, like you shouldn't even be in the competition if you're going to fall that many times. And it just took me a long time to be able to get into the rhythm of what it meant to be an athlete at the training center. By 07, I had finally figured it out. It took me over two years at the training center to finally get to a point where I felt comfortable with the, the process um, the, the altitude, the things that come along with training there. And there were many times where I even spoke with my coach about moving back to Stanford and just saying like, you know, I'll live in a cot somewhere and train at Stanford because I know it's going to be a better training environment than actually being here. But, uh, I, I pushed through and in the end, it was absolutely the right decision for me to make. Wow. So you were an alternate that year, right? For the OAD Olympics. Yeah. Yeah. So the, the 08 process, uh, this could be a whole podcast by itself. So I don't know how long you want me to get into this, but I was, a I was the alternate. I won the national championship in 07 leading up to 08 and then, uh, took fourth during the process national championships and Olympic trials for 08. And we had a very different, unique scenario that happened with the 08 selection process being that, uh, Paul and Morgan Hom, the twin brothers that had been part of two Olympic teams, prior uh both were named to the team and then both got injured prior to us leaving for beijing Mm -hmm. so there were three alternates and two alternates went in i was the third that did not go in but we had two additional selection processes to decide who those two would be so over the course of a month leading up to beijing we ended up having five total selection processes which was extreme it was very draining in fact the last alternate Sasha Artemev, who was put in once Morgan pulled out, Morgan pulled out the day before opening ceremony. This was in Beijing. And so the day before opening ceremony, he pulled out and me and Sasha had to show readiness at the Beijing Olympic training center. Um, we had to do a few more routines in competition uniform in front of all the USA delegation to be able to show that we were ready to go. And, um, I did exactly what I had to do. In fact, I was really proud of my performances up to that point. And uh, they ended up selecting Sasha because he was needed on our weakest event, Pommel Horse. And that was 
right during opening ceremonies. And then we competed the next day. So this went right up. The team wasn't fully decided until opening ceremony, which is absolutely crazy. That is a that's a punch to the gut, especially if you felt like you did your best. And oh yeah, Uh, I mean, I think anyone at that point, if you don't believe that you should be in that on Mm -hmm. that team, then you shouldn't be in that situation in the first place. I I 100% believe that I should have been the guy selected. And I know that Sasha did. And I know that Raj, who was the other alternate that got put in, believed those same things. And if you don't believe that, then you shouldn't be in that situation in the first place. So um, I I wholeheartedly still believe that um, I should have been selected, but I'm so proud of what the guys did. Um, The guys that ended up competing, they took a bronze medal and they put on one of the great performances of men's gymnastics in terms of just history in general. When most people didn't even believe they would make team finals, they ended up getting a bronze, which was amazing. Wow. So how did you take these lessons that you learned as an athlete and transfer them to being a coach at Stanford? Yeah, that was interesting. Um, So through that whole process, you know, I I looked at it as having, I could take two routes, especially when I was told that second time that I wasn't going to be put in, I could make a big issue for the team, right? I could Mm -hmm. say, what are you guys talking about and make a big mess. And we were in the Olympic village and I could just, start berating the process and the coaches and the selection committee and making a big stink. Or I could say the team is what matters. Mm -hmm. And even in an individual sport like gymnastics, the team is what takes precedent over anything. And I could say, okay, the selection has been done at this point with the position that I have, I have to do everything that I possibly can to make sure that this team succeeds. And that's the approach that I ended up taking mm-hmm. and saying, all right, I'm going to be the biggest cheerleader for this team. I'm going to get water bottles. I'm going to make sure your bag is there. In fact, the best, I guess, story that I can tell about this is that the person that went in, into that last spot, Sasha, who ended up hitting one of the most beautiful palm wars routines you will ever see in your life to clinch the bronze medal. And I highly recommend you and your listeners watching that routine from 08, the last routine of men's finals, men's team finals. He forgot his uniform in the U.S. for the Olympics, and he wore my uniform. How about that? Yeah. So his uniform that he wore throughout team finals and is up on that podium is my uniform, which he gave back to me. And um, so I was out with them in some form from that competition. I was willing to do anything I possibly could to make sure that I was in a role to help them succeed. I always looked at myself as kind of one of the leaders and one of the captains of the team. And I think that's what you do as a leader. You, you find ways to make the situation better, not worse. Mm-hmm. And I tried to take that mentality back to Stanford when I went to coach them. I got back from Beijing. I had knee surgery because I actually had a torn ACL during the Olympic process. So I got back. I had knee surgery at the training center. And then as soon as knee surgery was over, I drove right to California and started coaching the team in 09, 08 and 09. And um, we actually ended up winning national championship that year, which was um, a little icing on the cake. It was a ring that I wasn't able to get as an athlete that I eventually got as a coach. How about that? I mean, that's like very selfless. Um, And I love the fact that you, you, you made, you made a conscious decision. Like, look, I don't, I don't agree with the outcome, but I'm going to be a a great teammate. And that is such a freaking cool story um, (laughs) of, of your uniform being worn to actually clinch it. So, I mean, you're part of it. I mean, you really, really are. So later on down the line, from what I understand, you went on to be part of the selection committee 
Yeah. For yeah, the national so. team. So how did you like, what criteria did you use when selecting athletes? I mean, I understand that there's certain skills. Is it just as refined as like grade the skill and that's it? Or do you also look at mental factors? So the, the being part of the selection committee. So I was uh, part of the athlete advisory council for 10 years mm-hmm. with the, the USOPC and then uh, was part of the men's technical committee on USA gymnastics for a number of years as well. And a part of that, I was selected to be uh, part of the, se- the selection committee. It's not a position that I wanted to have. Mm-hmm. It's not a position that I think anyone enjoys. It's a terrible position having to make dreams come true for a group of guys and ruining the dreams of another guys, a group of guys is terrible. Mm-hmm. It's absolutely awful. Um, I was given that role because I was the athlete representative at the time. And, um, there were two of us and they selected me to be the rep for it. Fortunately, those are positions that are selected on by the current national team members. So those guys have faith that I will do the best job I can to assist in that process, but it's, it's a fallible system. It's not something that's perfect. The, the way that it should be in the way that I think we as a group um, looked at it is that it should go primarily by the numbers. So what the guys actually produce out on the floor. And so you, you take those scores and there are a couple of guys, if you win Olympic trials and national championships, you have an automatic spot. Mm -hmm. So one guy will get an automatic spot and there's possibility. The rules are constantly changing, but there's a possibility for another guy to get an automatic spot. So then you're kind of like trying to figure out the best team possible by kind of picking and choosing. It's a huge puzzle. So what you're trying to do is figure out what's going to allow for the best team to be out on the floor for team finals at the Olympic games. And they've changed team final format a couple of times over the years. And the way that it is now is you put three guys up on each event and all three scores count. So there's no real room for error. If you make a mistake, it's drastically changes your team score. So what you're trying to do is figure out What's the best 18 scores, six events, three scores on each event, the best 18 scores that you can put forward to potentially get on top of that podium. So you have these one or two guys that have automatic spots and you're trying to fill in the remainder of those spots. With How many guys spots are there total? Changes. It's, it's changed quite a bit over the years. The year that I was uh, uh, on the selection, it was five guys. Hmm. Now this year, uh, Tokyo next month and next in two weeks, it's going to be four man team for the first time ever. And then you have the possibility to have one or two individuals. We've qualified one individual and the four man team. So it's even a smaller group of guys, but it was five man when, when I was on the selection. And so we were trying to fill in three spots and then the alternates to be able to cover our bases. So what we ended up doing is going primarily by the numbers and then looking at other factors if needed. And that's kind of how the uh, selection process are written out. Uh, all of these things need to be vetted and, and approved by USAG as as well as uh, the USOPC, and you know it's it's something that actually is is looked over quite uh, quite a bit before it actually goes into effect. But um, fortunately for us, the team that we selected was also the top five guys in terms mm. of how the how the the final rankings finished. So the numbers matched the team that we selected, which was fantastic. That rarely happens. But it actually worked. It actually happened again this year. The top four guys in the all around were also the four guys that were selected for the team. So sometimes it happens. Uh, sometimes it doesn't. 
Uh, if you look at some of the previous years, that doesn't always happen. My year didn't happen. And uh, 04 and 2000, it didn't happen. It was kind of a, a big issue in 2000 as well. Uh, but yeah, that, that's part of the selection process. We're so grateful to the Blueprints title sponsor, The Festive Kitchen. The zany creators at The Festive Kitchen set out to create the perfect sweet, salty, crunchy snack with just a little heat. After attempting numerous flavor combinations, they started sharing samples with friends and families who would ask, what is the name of this snack? Since there was no name, they just answered, I don't know, but it's freaking awesome. Hilariously, the name stuck and a new product was born. It's a snack and it's freaking addicting and it's called It's Freaking Awesome. You can order online now at shop.festivekitchen.com and itsfreakingawesome.com. Trust me, this snack tastes as cool as it sounds. Brace yourself because you'll be ordering frequently for your monthly freaking fix. The good news is they now have a freaking monthly subscription. Again, it's available online at shop dot festivekitchen.com and it's freaking awesome.com that's i-t-s-f-r-e-a-k-i-n awesome.com so you you go on from being a coach at stanford and i want to kind of fast forward a little bit sure because you got a really interesting career uh you have co-founded a company called power monkey fitness okay yeah but you met your co-founder at a Victoria's Secret fashion show. <laughs> you you yes. want to talk about how this happens? Sure, sure. Uh, my my partner, uh, who was also uh, a gymnast, he was a collegiate gymnast at Syracuse, a little bit older than me, uh, had been a performer in New York for a number of years. And I actually, um, I lived in Italy for two years. So after I coached Stanford, I moved to Italy. I moved to Rome and where my family lives. So I lived in Rome for a year and then I ended up living in Venice for another year because I was performing at the Venice Biennale for the American entry to the Contemporary Art Festival, mm. where is that actually how I met my wife. But in any case, um, between those two years, I came right back from Rome. I landed and my now partner with Power Monkey um, asked me to be a gymnast to audition for this group that they were looking to have for the 2010 Victoria's Secret show. <laughs> and I was like, you don't have to ask me twice. Yes, absolutely. I will come and be a part of this. And it was a, a group of national team members and a bunch of guys that, you know, I'd competed with, there were, I think eight or nine of us. And we did these very weird and oddball and <laughs> I wouldn't say great performing or dancers, but we were up on the stage with the, the uh, Victoria's Secret models and we were tumbling down the runway. Uh, one of the models actually had a big fake barbell on her back and there's this great picture. And I was one of the ones that got asked to do back handsprings down the stage while this model was walking with a barbell on her back. And um, she kind of missed her cue a little bit and she started walking back while we were tumbling. It was oh, supposed no. to happen that way. And we almost kicked her off the stage. It was <laughs> Pretty phenomenal story, but fortunately we just barely missed her, but it would have been quite an epic fail if uh, the two gymnasts up on the stage kicked this model. All for the sake of art, right? <laughs> yeah, absolutely. But it, it was it was just an amazing experience, uh, something I definitely won't forget. And that's how uh, I met my partner and uh, we got Power Monkey kickstarted from there. So what is Power Monkey? So, so Power Monkey started out uh, much differently than what it is today. Uh, we consider ourselves fitness educators. Mm -hmm. uh, so essentially, we're a collection of former elite athletes that have transitioned into coaching and teaching. And uh, we started out with gymnastics, our specialties. And then we started bringing in a bunch of other 
great coaches from other sports, uh, weightlifting being the secondary one. I don't know if the video is a part of this, but if you can see our logo here, this is an actual real picture that we did. My partners at the bottom or my, uh, counterpart on the weightlifting side, Chad Vaughn, who's a two-time Olympian was in an overhead squat. And I did a press the handstand on the bar over him. So our logo is actually something that we really did. Oh my goodness. Yeah. He's in an overhead squat and I pressed the handstand on top of the bar. And, um, that was at our first power monkey camp. And so that became our logo, which we think is pretty cool. Uh, but yeah, we've branched out uh, from gymnastics and weightlifting into endurance and kettlebell training, rowing, uh, jump rope proficiency. And we have a bunch of these experts in these areas that we bring together two times a year at our big camp. And then we do um, online programming through our app and clinics around the world where we do one in one and two day clinics kind of working on not only getting athletes to be more proficient with their movements, but also teaching coaching techniques so that there's more people around the world who know how to pass on these methods onto other people. So for us, it's, it's less about the competitive side of this kind of CrossFit world that we work in or functional fitness and more about making sure that there's great coaches out there to be able to disseminate this information. And so you guys really focus on technique, correct? Technique matters. That's kind of our motto. We, so why does it matter? Why does it matter? Because of longevity. There you go. Because we really want people to be able to do these things for the rest of their lives. And we have a tendency, especially in the world that we work in to, uh, that intensity supersedes, uh, mechanics. And we have a tendency to see people doing workouts at speeds and at intensities that they shouldn't be. And they might be able to write a fast time up on the board or beat the person next to them. But it, over time that we'll start to break down movement patterns, creates less efficiency. We start to see a lot of injuries associated with it. And our whole thing is we love the fact that people are interested in weightlifting and gymnastics and all these niche sports that were kind of pushed to the side or never really recognized. And now we have people around the world hanging rings and wanting to learn handstands. And we want people to be able to do that for the rest of their lives and to do it with quality and to be able to enjoy it. And so our whole thing is, yes, let's, Let's embrace these movements, but let's make sure that we're doing technically correct so that 20 years down the road, you're still able to do them. I love it. Cause I think when CrossFit first started, um, you know, my background as a strength conditioning coach and a sports scientist, you know, we were like purists in the weight room and in yeah, sure, sure. my background in track and field, you know, you look at locomotion very from a biomechanical standpoint and you're looking for clean, pure technique. And when I first saw CrossFit, I was like, I was watching people do really bad technique and putting themselves in, in harm's way. Not that that was the intention of CrossFit. But that's just what happened, right? Mm -hmm. um, and same kind of when you saw the power power lifting wave come through with Louis Simmons and Westside Barbell and all that kind of stuff. And then people were, you just watch stuff like rounded back deadlifts. And you're like, oh my gosh, <laughs> I can't watch this. People are, you know, their right. thoracic spine's going to just, T8's going <laughs> to shoot out their back. So I really like the fact that you guys are actually honing in your value propositions. Like we want to teach you the technique and uh, to, so that you can do this forever. And you have a lot of physical therapists looped into your process, don't you? Yeah, we do. It's a huge part of what we do. Um, we feel like it's always been a missing link between the coaching side and what PTs can bring to the equation. And a lot of our PTs were former athletes themselves too, gymnasts mm -hmm. and power lifters. And uh, so they know the movements. And I think that's such a critical piece for anyone out there that's actually working with a PT to find someone that actually knows the movement patterns that you're, you know, kind of 
uh, working on on a regular basis. So they know where the stresses are at. They under, they can completely understand uh, what's going on with the mechanics of things. So for us, it's about completely merging coaching techniques with the most recent science that PTs are, are uh, able to work with so that we're able to kind of bring to the forefront uh, best techniques, best practices from both areas. I hope my wife's listening. She's a, she's a doctorate in physical therapy and uh, we do jujitsu. Mm-hmm. And so she's always working on jujitsu athletes. I mean, they're <laughs> so beat up. Uh, we need a power monkey fitness, you know, for that. So, Oh yeah. Let me ask you a question. We have three questions. Oh, Oh, before I get to that, you run summer camps for adults. Oh yeah. Like I want to go back to camp. It's the best thing in the world. Talk, talk to us about this summer camp because I, when I saw this, I was like, Crete, like you're doing a summer camp in Crete and you have this thing in Tennessee. Yeah. Like what in the world? Like how, talk, talk to me about this. Yeah. So um, I'm not going to be too sales pitchy on this, but it's the best thing that we, we put on our power monkey camp. We're coming up to our 16th one uh, in end of September, beginning of October. And um, I have to say that I'm, I've always been most proud of what I have done. I did as a, as an athlete in my career, I was always really proud of the career that I had as an athlete and finally got to a point where power monkey camp has now either equalized or even superseded mm. how proud I am of what power monkey camp has become. Um, we intended to put on a week long adult fitness camp and it's at this beautiful facility in, in Tennessee that's owned by two Olympic gymnast friends of mine. They, they run it as a kid's gymnastics camp in the summers. And we take over in the fall and the spring. It's 150 acres, 32 acre lake, five mile running trails. We have 30,000 square foot of gym space. We have an amazing chef, Rosie Joe, that comes out and cooks amazing meals all week. You, you stay in cabins. It very much is a full-time uh, camp setting. It's a kid's camp. And um, so we we take over and we turn it into an adult fitness camp. And it's it's just turned into something so much more than the information that you get. We bring in about 30 to 40 experts in a variety of different areas. You train, um, you eat, you hang out. We have campfires, we have beers and s'mores every night telling stories. It's absolutely awesome. And I think people sometimes maybe go and check out Power Monkey Camp and are intimidated by the athletes that they see and maybe some of the, the promo videos and things like that. We've had the top CrossFit athletes out uh, for a number of years but it's meant for the everyday athlete, the beginner, the intermediate, the person that is really scared about learning how to do a snatch or weren't, has never been inverted before and is worried about making sure that they're safe in, in a safe environment. We put everything into making sure that foundation is the key. So every person that comes, no matter if you're 15 years old, we have people in their 80s that come out. We've, people from 25 countries have come out. It's it's a really spectacular event that we're really proud of. And uh, we're looking to make sure that it continues to move forward uh, for as long as possibly can. Our good friend, Dr. Allison Brager, who came on the show, she's, she's the one that told me about you in this camp. We were chatting offline. I was like, Hey, this is on a couple weeks later. And I'm like, you know, who would you recommend to come on the show? And she's like, Oh, you got to get Dave Durante on. There's this thing, power monkey fitness camp. And she, you know how she is. She just gets rolling. I'm like, slow down. You go to a fitness camp with adults. And then I looked at it. I was like, this looks like a blast. Um, I highly recommend if you're listening to this, because we have a lot of people that, that train, um, on a regular basis and fitness is a very important part of their life to go check this out. Cause it looks like a once in a lifetime type of experience for adults and you're doing one in Greece, right? 
Yeah. So we, we started doing these uh, more exclusive retreats. Mm-hmm. Uh, we're, we bring out like three coaches. It's like 10 to 15 people max. The camp that we do in Tennessee is 100 participants and mm-hmm. another 50 to 70 staff. So it's pretty massive. It's 150, 170 people total. Uh, we were, we are going to be sold out for the fall, uh, spring dates are kind of up and ready to go for, for May. Uh, but re- the retreat in Crete is pretty special. It's awesome. We have this, um, she's a benefactor of ours with power monkey. She's actually a former camper that just fell in love with what we do. And she has uh, a facility in Crete, uh, four villas with a beautiful Lico rig and set up right in the middle. We're about 30 feet from the beach. Um, there's an island right there that we can swim to and paddleboard to, and we're going to waterfalls, we're going wine tasting, we're doing all these amazing things and training at the same time with some amazing coaches. We bring out some doctors from New York uh, to be able to do RMR testing and um, impedance testing and food sensitivity testings, and we're doing all these kind of higher end things for the, the people that are coming out. And that that event this is the first one that we're putting on. It was postponed. It's supposed to be last year. Mm. And so we're really excited. We're going out there in about four weeks. And for the people that signed up, I know it's going to be a pretty special event. That is awesome. So, okay. We have three questions we always ask on this podcast. And the first one is, what does high performance mean to you? Okay. Uh, That's a really interesting question. I would say that high performance has to do with maximizing your human potential. And everyone's human potential is completely different. So being a high performer and high performance is essentially trying to get the most you can out of what you've been given. Mm. And I think what it requires is it requires a lot of insight and a lot of um, self-reflection for each person to be able to really analyze what you are actually physically, emotionally uh, capable of doing. And again, like I said, it's different for everyone. So it's not going to be a universal answer. It's going to be something that is specific for that individual, but it requires a lot to be able to kind of figure out what that eventual target goal is. That's a great answer. So what habits or practices have you put in place for yourself so that you can consistently be performing at a high level? That's difficult as well. Uh, I would probably have a different answer a couple of years ago. Children throw a wrench into a lot of those things. Amen. Uh, <laughs> I got three. When, when you're when you're single or when you're just with your significant other, uh, my answer probably would have been much different. But now, uh, being the the dad of two, uh, priorities change. Um, now, being a high performer, one has to do with making sure they get enough sleep, which is at a premium, mm-hmm. but it revolves around being a good dad. And for me, being a good dad is critical. Like being someone that's there for my kids and someone that can devote enough time where I'm really interested in what's going on with their daily lives. And so it takes a little bit away from maybe what I would be doing uh, to kind of better my own personal self. Uh, But it's so critical for me to be able to kind of impart important things onto their, you know, youth right now that for me being a high performer is actually synonymous with being a good dad. And so for me, that's a huge part of it, but I mentioned sleep. I can be a good dad if I get a good workout in every day. Mm -hmm. So spending time being sweating and and spending time, uh, inverted, Uh (laughs) getting upside down every day, um, also helped me be a better person. And my wife will tell you that I'm a completely 
different and ornery person if I don't get a workout in. Um, and then I'm sure you hear this all the time, but the diet side of it as well, you know, sleep, working out diet are three that are, I think are absolutely critical for me to be able to feel like I'm capable of being a high performer on the diet side. We cook a lot. Like I love being in the kitchen, seeing your social um, media, sweating it up in the kitchen. Oh yeah. Yeah. I, I love being in the kitchen. Um, my mom is an amazing Italian cook at home. We grew up every day with great meals and I tried to take what I could from her in terms of being good in the kitchen. And I do most of the cooking here at the house. And for me, being able to have good meals, being able to get as much sleep as you possibly can with two little kids, and then making sure you get a good workout in every day. Those are absolutely three pillars for me. That's awesome. Last thing, how are you investing in your personal growth and development right now? Is there something you're leaning into as a book you're reading? Is there something you're trying to learn about more? Yeah, I think pandemic has definitely um, made some of those things more prominent just mm-hmm. because, you know, we weren't able to travel. I was traveling so much prior to pandemic that I was on the road, maybe 35, 40 weekends out of the year. Oh, wow. That, um, you know, being home more and being more present, my, my second daughter was born right in the middle of the pandemic. So, uh, it was nice to be home to kind of be here for the first year. Uh, books, I have tons of books that I'm always reading. I'm not like into like one book. I'm always like chapter here, chapter there. I'm kind of reading like 10 books at the same time, but I would say that getting my mind off of the craziness that comes along with being a business owner, small business owner and trying to run events and trying to uh, maintain um, competency within my own physical field of, you know, gymnastics and and things that I do requires me to have balance outside of that. Mm -hmm. So I find balance in certain hobbies that I really enjoy. And there's a few that, um, I've always been into art, like drawing and, and charcoals and that kind of stuff. It was one of the things that I really kind of leaned into a lot when I was training at the Olympic Training Center. Uh, I got into calligraphy. Nice. And so um, I'm fortunate enough to live out here in Portland where one of the top calligraphers in the world just happens to be interested in gymnastics. And I kind of um. met up with him and he's been teaching me a little bit of uh, his methods. He's amazing. His name's David Grimes. He's fantastic. And so I've been doing some calligraphy and I picked up golf. So I've been like crazy into golf lately. (laughs) So for me, these are things that are absolutely critical for me to be able to hone in on the things that matter when it's time for that so that I can actually have this separation between my work time and my hobby time or the time that kind of gives me a reset. I love it. Dave, thank you so much for coming on today. How can people find out more about Power Market Fitness? How can they learn more about your camps, your products, et cetera? Sure. So um, Instagram, just myself is just at Dave Durante. Our company is at Power Monkey Fitness. Uh, those are great ways to kind of keep up with what we're doing. Our website is powermonkeyfitness.com. And then for our events, it's powermonkeycamp.com. Uh, those are great ways to kind of be able to keep up to date with our specific events. And our last thing is our app, Monkey Method. You can find it in iOS and on Android. Um, that's all of our training plans, skill-specific plans. If you want to train with us, it's absolutely the best way to do it. Uh, We go through an assessment and put you into the right plan, no matter what your starting point is. I love it. Thank you so much for coming on today. Of course. Thanks, Eric. I really appreciate it. It was great to talk to you. If today's podcast enriched your life in any way, please support The Blueprint by sharing this podcast with someone you think could benefit from today's conversation. Also, please consider checking out the Festive Kitchen's amazing product. It's freaking awesome. It makes for a fantastic gift for a colleague, a friend, or a loved one. Or as a freaking fun snack when you want something sweet and savory to tantalize your taste buds. 
Thanks for listening. You can find more episodes and all other Hot Pie Media originals baked fresh daily at our home on the web at hotpiemedia.com, the Hot Pie Media YouTube channel, or wherever you listen to podcasts.